If you've ever wondered what the technology behind the scenes of some of today's largest retailers look like, you're going to want to tune in as we catch up with Dave Glick, the CTO of Flex, a warehousing and logistics company focused on retail. After getting his PhD from UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels in physics. And by the way, I think this is our third physicist churn technologist on the show. Dave has spent 20 years at Amazon building out their fulfillment and transportation systems amongst a variety of other roles throughout the company. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, Dave. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and it's always good to catch up with uh, Tar Heel. Uh, while I didn't actually go to UNC Chapel Hill, I did live in Chapel Hill for 10 years and came to very much appreciate at least the basketball and football tickets that my neighbor used to give me. So, <laughs> Chapel Hill is a beautiful place, especially during basketball season. It is indeed, and especially when they're winning, it's a whole lot of fun to be there. Dave, I want to perhaps have you set the stage for our listeners by taking us back actually to those university days and, and have you fill in a little bit on what inspired you to get into physics, including what inspired you to get a PhD? Yeah, well, that was such a long time ago. The only B I ever got in high school was in physics. Um, and when I went off to university, I had planned to be a, a chemist or a biologist uh, my father was a chemist, and he was the chairman of chemistry at Wayne State University, and then eventually the dean, then provost, and then a university president. And as I was growing up, I saw uh, what he did and then said, that's what I want to do. So I got my degree in physics undergrad, and I went to grad school to do physics there. And it turned out about three years in, I was not a very good physicist. And I called my dad and said, you know, I'm not a very good physicist. And he said, I wasn't a very good chemist either, but I'm a great administrator. <laughs> and I said, well, I wish you would have told me that three years ago. <laughs> and so, you know, I muscled through the last three years of the PhD. And when I finished, uh, my wife got a PhD at the same time, and she was actually a very good biochemist. And so we made an agreement that we would move to a place that has good industry and good uh, academics so she could get her postdoc. Um, and so we narrowed it down to Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco. And she applied to universities there. And we moved out there and lived in a friend's basement for the first three or four months while I looked for a job. And it turned out that uh, one of the people who had left our program had started as a customer service associate at Amazon. And she was able to get my resume in the pile for a junior project manager role. That then ties into how you got your start at Amazon, because that was pretty early. I'm trying to remember when exactly Amazon was found. It was like 90... 394, somewhere in there? Yeah, it was founded in 94, and I think they went public mid-year 97, um, and I joined November 98. 
Yeah, but then, you know, and of course, much of the growth has really been in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. So you were there through a lot of that growth, right? Yeah, I think I calculated we grew 210x while I was there. Okay, so you've got this physics degree. You you, you came to this conclusion you weren't really wanting to be a physicist. I'm, I'm kind of curiously, you know, when did that moment happen and how did you really come to that? You know, I mean, I know physics is a hard major, but like, what was the experience you were, what was that feeling you were having of, hey, physics just isn't cut out for me at this point? I was an experimentalist. I worked in a laser lab and we'd work late at night uh, in the dark alone. <laughs> My advisor would come in the next morning and he'd have another idea for me to work on. And I'd be like, man, I'm trying to figure out this thing. And you've got another idea for me. And I was good at solving sort of master's degree level problems, but sort of the depths of knowledge that you had to have and sort of the curiosity to go and do things no one had ever done before. I just didn't have the spark for it. And I found that I couldn't live it. You powered through is, is I think what you're saying is effectively you just, you just put your head down and you said, you know, I'm going to finish this even though I don't like it. Yeah. And I just said, you know, get really goal focused of, you know, how do I get through my preliminary exam? And then what's the minimum I I need to do to get out of here? (laughs) So was it just, you know, kind of feeling like, you know, I've committed, I want to get this done and get on with it. Was there anything else like driving that? Did you feel like you had to have a PhD for what you wanted to do later in life? Or or at that point, you were just like, hey, I'm committed, I'm going to go do this. Yeah, I was committed. And I didn't really know what else to do. You know, all of the our family friends were professors. And I was, you know, what I thought was 60% of the way done after three years, turned out it was closer to 50% of the way done. But I figured once you have a PhD, they can never take those letters away from you. And you do learn a lot in terms of how to solve problems and how to parameterize them, how to think from sort of first principles. There's so many physics majors in the tech world. And I think it's that kind of thing that you learn to solve such hard problems that everything else kind of feels within scope. Well, so I'm curious then, you know, so you go into Amazon, were you writing code right off the bat? You said, I think project manager. How was that then transitioning from, okay, you know, I've got a PhD in physics and now you're working as a project manager in this public, but still early company that is growing like crazy? Yeah, I fortunately didn't know what I didn't know. My first project, I got sent to open up a warehouse, and that was in Fernley, Nevada, which was our first big warehouse. And, you know, I had a list of tasks to get done, and I didn't do any of them. You know, I had to engage the networking team to set up networks and engage the systems and the telecom team to do what they needed to do to support these warehouses. I just kind of marched down that list, and as problems came up, we resolved them. Sometimes I had to call back to corporate, but for the most part, we were able to work through all the problems. And I was focused specifically on the systems and networking or what they call IT infrastructure right now. And so I was able to get all the things done so that we could launch the software and launch that building. So it's basically on the job training as a, not just a project manager, but also, you know, somebody having to get up on e-commerce and systems and fulfillment and all of that as well, right? Yeah, I'd never been in a fulfillment center before. We called them distribution centers then. And I remember once someone asked me something about a data center. So I went to find the problem and I referred to the data center as the DC when it was really the distribution center as the DC. That's how a little I knew. And so I was quickly corrected. Well, so then I'm kind of curious, you know, you've you've spent 
20 years there. In those early years, how were you thinking about your career? Were you just like, hey, I'm in Seattle. My wife's here doing a postdoc. I've got a job. This is great. How were you thinking about your own personal growth at that point in time? You know, if I think about the first year, it was just heads down. I was on a plane every week. We opened five fulfillment centers that summer. And so I didn't think too much about it. Although to be fair, my offer letter actually said junior project manager. And I worked with some folks who were senior project managers uh, in different parts of the company, but we were working closely together. And I went and complained to my boss and said like, hey, that guy's a senior project manager. Why am I not a senior project manager? To his credit, he went and got me promoted. And it actually got me promoted, like double promoted. Uh, And there was a lot less structure at Amazon back then than there is now. I became a senior project manager over the summer (laughs) and then eventually managed the team in in IT infrastructure that supported the fulfillment centers for the next uh, three or four years. Wow. Well, yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, you spent 20 years there. You've had a variety of roles. I mean, I'm just looking at your LinkedIn here, senior manager, pricing software, director of pricing, technical advisor, director of global fulfillment, director of merchants, VP of fulfillment, you know, kind of walk me through a little bit of that progression of what was going on? How were you approaching and building and growing your career? How were you thinking about, you know, your career at Amazon as this rocket ship is taking off? Certainly the first few years were very tactical and maybe the whole thing was less thoughtful than you might think it was. I moved up to this sort of what we call level six, which is first line manager. And I kind of got stuck there for, I don't know, five, six years. I was managing a small team, then a little bit bigger team. And then I got the opportunity to manage, you know, about a 35 person team of folks who are doing what we called quality deployment and support. And, you know, I jumped at that opportunity because it was managing a big team. And I thought, hey, I can get promoted to senior manager. Uh, And that was sort of my tactical goal. You know, as I talked to my boss about that, the feedback she gave me was IT infrastructure is all moving to AWS. You know, we're trying to reduce the number of QA folks and support engineers we have. You know, you really need to be in software. You don't have a software degree. uh, So you might be at the end of your career here. That was still fairly early on in your time at Amazon? Yeah, that was about 2005. And I don't even know if I have that job on my LinkedIn. That was sort of a moment of reckoning for me. You know, Amazon does these organizational leadership reviews, which is let's talk about our people and you know see where we have new challenges for them, which I think is a great process. And Kim went to this and said, I've got this guy. He's pretty good, Dave Glick, but he's sort of at a dead end. And uh, Suresh Kumar, uh, who's now the CTO at Walmart, grabbed me and said, hey, you know, come work for me. I've got lots of people who can write code. I need people who can get stuff done. That was a time when we were investing big in tools for retail buyers. And so I moved over with him. And that sort of was a super inflection point in my career. Well, so tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what were you inflecting into, I guess, <laughs> to, to coin a phrase there? Like, is that when you started really getting into the automation of warehouses, things like that? Or That was actually outside of warehouses. You know, I went actually from managing a team about 35 people in quality deployment and support to managing two people in software. <laughs> and my team was called Buying Tools. And it was to build tools that helped our uh, retail buyers make better decisions about what inventory they're buying and what prices they're setting. Uh, And very quickly, that team grew from two people to five people. 
a few weeks later, we added another team. We ended up reorganizing and I took over pricing, which is one of the most strategic points for the company. And it's still at this point, you don't have exactly a software background, but you're, you know, are again, learning on the job. Is that a theme here for you of digging in and figuring out what the heck goes into these things as you're doing the job? Yeah, I think one of my superpowers is to be able to get up to speed very quickly. Um, and again, up to sort of like master's degree level very quickly, which is mostly what you need. But I was kind of the exception to the rule. Most everybody who's a software leader at a undergrad or master's degree in software. So were you doing anything like uh, outside of work as well to kind of get up to speed on this? Or how did you approach that? I, I can imagine too that you actually bring some unique things to it because you're not perhaps biased by prior software training. But I'm curious, you know, what was that early learning curve like for you? One of the things I did when I was in infrastructure is I got paged for every SEV1 ticket that we had in the fulfillment centers. And that allowed me to see what breaks, right? At 3 a.m., 6 a.m. Eastern, the folks come into the warehouse on the East Coast and something's broken. The sortation system won't start up. They paged us. And so I was able to learn a lot about how systems work and how they don't work and what breaks and develop a, a really good intuition about that, which allowed me to build credibility with the engineers even though I couldn't sit down in their development environment and write code. Uh, interesting. Well, and of course, in that type of scenario, you have a whole lot of incentive to not get paged at three in the morning, right? And that's right. I became passionate about operational excellence. Nothing like getting woken up in the morning to early to try to cure uh, hiccups in the system, right? Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I didn't realize you had like this just kind of thrown into the fire software side of this as well. I'm curious because I actually wanted to have you expand on two things just from a listener point of view of understanding what goes into these roles. So I'd love it if you expanded a little bit on the pricing software of just like, you know, you said that's a super strategic area. I often tell our listeners, hey, you know, you want to align yourself with really strategic areas. So explain a little bit more what that one is. And then I would love also as a follow-up to for you to explain a bit more of like what fulfillment technology looks like these days, just for our listeners to have some grounding in, in what these roles are. You know, it turns out that one of my engineers told me, you know, I was talking to him and said, you know, what we're doing isn't rocket science here. And he said, you know, Dave, most of software engineering is not rocket science. <laughs> You know, whether you're building a pricing engine or building a sortation system, a lot of it is, you know, figuring out what are the requirements and figuring out how to build it scalably. But, you know, generally writing code, you know, in some ways is um, commodity. I hate yeah. to say that on a technology show. No, I say the same thing. I'm with you. <laughs> you know, the people who succeed are those who can listen to their customers, figure out exactly what their customers need, and then translate that to the engineers and who can hire and retain great engineers. You know, most of those problems when I moved, you know, I had I was in buying tools and I lobbied really hard to get transferred or take on the team who was doing pricing. And, you know, I was victorious and I was able to run that team. And the first thing I found was it's the same as the old team. <laughs> it's like, you've got sub two tickets and, you know, you need to improve the latency of your technology and, you know, you need to decouple it. And, you know, the good thing is that you get a lot of leverage from pricing, but generally it's the same, you know, set of technologies. I developed a playbook where I would run the operational excellence play first. And so no matter what situation I walked into, 
you know, I was going to bring a bunch of change. But one of the things I knew is everybody wanted the system to run. And the engineers wanted the system to run so they didn't get paged. The business customers wanted the run system to run so that they could make more money. And the engineers often would feel like the business guys won't let us build a stable architecture. You know, they just want new features. My first task was always to, okay, engineers, what do you think the right thing is to do? And I'm going to do my best to help you be able to do that. And it often meant uh, negotiating with the business owners or the customers to say, hey, we need to take a step back and we need to make our system scale. They would sometimes crib about that. Uh, but then once you explained, like, if you want your website to stay up or if you want your prices to be produced, this is what we need to do. And almost always we get to agreement pretty quickly. It's much better to have stale prices than the site to be down and have no prices, right? <laughs> the wrong prices or publish null prices for the whole site. Fortunately, we caught it and we shut the publisher down. Uh, but that would have been disastrous. Are you missing tech conferences? I know I am. I miss meeting so many great people and hearing and learning from talented speakers from around the world. Well, you are in luck as there is a new online series of conferences from Manning Publications called Live at Manning that is aimed at filling your live learning needs. As many of you know, Manning has been a great supporter of the show, offering up free books and discounts for our listeners. We've teamed up with them as a media sponsor this time to spread the word on this new series. These conferences are free to attend, filled with talks from some really great tech experts, and streamed globally via Twitch. No travel needed. Next up in the Live at Manning series is a one-day event focused on the Rust programming language. It is on September 15th, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern. This is your chance to hear from speakers like Carol Nichols, who is a member of the Rust core team, as well as other Rust experts and authorities, including Michael Hasenblas, who you heard here on Developmentor in episode 55. Head over to developmentor.com slash RustCon, all one word, to find out more. In case you didn't catch that, there of course will be a link in our show notes. We hope to see you there. I remember back in the early days of retail, every now and then there would be one of these glitches in the matrix where I think Best Buy was the most notorious. They had one day where like something that was like $200 was like 99 cents or something like that, if I recall, right? Yeah, and we had those too. And that's basically why the pricing team was started. I took over or I inherited whatever you want to call it. I ended up having to deal with pricing errors. I was the business owner for pricing errors. And what we did is, went through the whole process of setting prices, both you know on promotions and automatically and manually. And what we found was every time a human was involved, defects were injected. You know, we developed the phrase, you know, humans are great defect injectors, and they're also good error handlers. And so what we did is we went through every single spot where the humans were involved and started to figure out a way to you know, get the human's fingers out of there. We were able to reduce pricing errors by 90% year over year. Yeah, because I mean, just for our listeners' sake here, I mean, I've I've seen glimpses of this having worked in retail a fair amount. I mean, these are pretty dynamic systems these days, especially at large sites, right? Like, it's not just supply and demand, but you're predicting future demand. Some you've got, you know, 
whatever's happening in the market in terms of what's hot, what's not, like what's trending, et cetera. Like there's often a lot of variables that go into these systems. And then of course there's sales and promotions and all that, right? Yeah. You know, one of the secrets is to keep it as simple as possible for as long as possible. And I always want to build a stable system with the most simple algorithm as possible. And then you build in extensibility. And so you can incrementally and experiment with more sophisticated algorithms and changes in policy. But we talk about a complete process until you have the system automated, one, you've driven adoption, meaning the, the users, the humans aren't working around the system. And then you've built audit processes to make sure the system is doing the right thing. You don't have a complete process. And so, you know, one of the things I learned was that writing software isn't enough. That's the easiest part of those three. Yeah, that ties back to your commodity comment earlier, which I'm a big believer too. If you look at all the things that go into building a tech business, the software piece is the easiest to outsource when you think about it, right? It is, although you know that has its own set of problems. <laughs> it does for sure, but you can't outsource figuring out product market fit, for instance, or at least you can't do it easily. You can outsource some of sales, but not really, you know, so there's so many things that go into that. I'm curious, you know, before we get into your latest transition to CTO, I would love for you to fill in a little bit more, like, what is this fulfillment technology realm look like? I mean, are we talking robots? You know, like, what are all the things that go into building these fulfillment centers and what attracted you to that space? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I owned all of the technology inside the four walls of the warehouse. So that's the warehouse management system, which, you know, is basically, you know, how do we get boxes off of trucks and product put into a bin? And then how do we get stuff picked out of a bin, sorted, packed into a box and put on a truck? That's sort of an easy way of thinking about what we did. And so, you know, that's traditional warehouse management system. And we built our own internally at Amazon. You know, at the time that I started back there, you know, I felt like it was coming home back to operations because that's where I had started my career as well. We had just purchased Kiva Systems, which is the uh, goods to person robots. And so my first year there was dedicated to uh, both improving the operational excellence and uh, integrating the Kiva robots into our systems and into our warehouses, which was super cool opportunity. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, obviously you don't, can't divulge full details, but I mean, I imagine that's got to be a pretty interesting melding of hardware and software. And, you know, and back to your earlier comment about humans and fallibility, I mean, that's kind of writ large in a warehouse, right? Yes. You got a ton of humans there and everyone is uh, capable of being a defect injector or a uh, error handler. And so they kind of feed on each other. If you think about warehouses, the most expensive part is picking the most expensive part of picking isn't actually picking, it's walking. You may walk for 60 seconds and then pick for five seconds and then walk for another 30 seconds and then pick for two seconds. And so the idea behind Kivo was you bring the goods to the person. And so you have a higher capital cost, but you end up with lower variable costs. Uh, gotcha. So it's all like being able to find and route the, the goods to the person who's then packing the boxes or, or doing whatever that piece is. Yeah, so you're basically automating the walking. Because if you think about automating, you know, a robot arm that picks a single item out of a bin, that is a super hard problem. And no one's really cracked the code at scale for that. But if you yeah. think about picking up a 
you know, a 300 pound pod and bringing it to a human, that's super easy. And robots are really good at that. Yeah. I mean, that was the magic of the Kiva model is that they didn't try to do the hard stuff. They tried to automate the easy stuff. And human beings have great end effectors. We call them fingers, but the roboticists think of them as end effectors. I love that. <laughs> That's I've never heard that term before. I love that. I don't want to spend this whole interview on Amazon, but of course, it's a big part of your career. I'm curious. Two more questions there. One maybe a little bit more in depth, which is, you know, Amazon's pretty well known for being a pretty demanding culture. You know, I'm curious, what are some of the key lessons and skills you took away from there? You know, when you reflect back on that 20 years. I think about the Amazon leadership principles. Uh, and there's 14 of them. Some of them, uh, my favorite ones are invent and simplify, dive deep, disagree and commit. You know, one of the things that was unique that we heard from people who just joined Amazon was Amazon was unique in terms of living the leadership principle every day rather than just having them written on the wall. Every company, including our company, has a customer obsession, value or leadership principle. You know, ours is put customer first. But, you know, the fact is when you're doing hiring and when you're doing performance reviews. And when you're giving feedback, you'll talk to people about, you know, we want you to dive a little bit deeper, or you need to simplify. And so those were a part of the culture, which, you know, I'm taking with me. And we actually had some arguments when I joined Flex, because I was like, we were redoing our company values. I was like, well, well there's 14 that we can steal from up the road. And uh, they work pretty well. But for a variety of reasons, you know, we didn't copy those. and We came up with our own, which were unique to Flex. And they're working really well. Yeah, it's always a little bit of a tricky one there. How much do you copy a company you, you know, you obviously admire? Or I've learned a lot from as a leader. And I want to talk about Flex here a little bit. One second. But last question, which I guess is the segue to Flex, which is, you know, why leave? And what was that inflection point like for you? You know, clearly you've built a lot of relationships there. You've risen through the ranks. What was on your mind as you were making that transition? I transitioned out of operations. About a year before I left, I moved to a team called Amazon Tickets. And I went over there to be the product and technology leader. And then my boss left. And so I ended up running the whole thing, uh, which was great. I owned the P&L, I owned the business and operations, as well as the tech and product. You know, it ended up that we shut it down about six months after I started there. But that was a, a good opportunity for me to sort of reevaluate, you know, what I wanted to do. And I just hit some financial goals that I've been working towards. And I didn't actually go to Flex. I, I retired. So ah. I took the next year off, um, which was great. Well, congratulations. First off, that's a big moment I know in, in a lot of people's lives. So, well, all right. So that then begs the question of why come back then? Why Flex? And, and tell us a little bit more about that. I usually don't ask about it employers on the show, but since you're senior leadership there, and I know you, you all are a startup, I figured it's fair game. So tell me about that. <laughs> The first several months of uh, retirement, I sat out in the sun in Lake Chelan and drank wine on my porch with my friends. September came and it started to rain. Kids went back to school. We came back to Seattle. You know, when you're sitting outside with your friends drinking wine, it's okay. If you're sitting inside alone drinking wine, you're an alcoholic. So I decided I needed to do something. The ex-Amazon network in Seattle is pretty strong. And so I started looking and I had talked to folks at you know, a startup and you know, a recently public real estate company. But it turns out at my level, there weren't that many jobs. And I interviewed a couple places and didn't get the job after I thought the interviews went well. I kind of resigned myself to never working again. <laughs> and you know, unless I wanted to move to the Bay Area and for family reasons, we didn't. You know, I was doing some consulting 
And then I ran into one of the venture capitalists at Madrona, uh, which is the, you know, the number one VC in Seattle, ran into him at a fundraiser. And I asked him to put in a good word at this other company for me that he was on the board of. And he called me a few days later and said, well, that one didn't work out, but you got to meet Carl. Got to meet these guys at Flex. It's warehousing. It's right up your alley. They've got great product market fit. They've got a huge market. They just need to execute. And I said, well, I'd be in charge of execution. Great. That's my specialty. And so I met Carl a couple of days later. And within 10 days, we'd done the interview loop and I'd accepted the offer. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I love those serendipitous moments of just being out there and being open. I mean, that's such a key takeaway there. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned in there, and I think it's been a theme throughout this operational excellence, this execution. For our listeners, you know, one or two quick actionable tips that help them be better at executing. Ask the engineers what they think the right thing to do is. I actually wrote a Medium article about operational excellence. And part of it is, you know, empower the engineers to do the right thing. We so often have product managers or business leaders who are telling the engineers what to do. You know, that demoralizes them because they end up being order takers instead of owners. And, you know, once people are owners and they have autonomy, they're going to do great things for you. So that's one tip. The second is focus. We had the term at Amazon, like, we want people single-threaded or we want a single-threaded leader. Don't be doing a ton of stuff at the same time. Yeah, you know, we've got a big customer and they need to launch on August 1st. You know, Let's all get heads down and be single-threaded on that problem. And it's a beautiful thing if you have enough resources to be single-threaded. But you know, if you don't, what it often means is to remove distractions. And then I think the third thing is both hire great people and be aggressive in performance management. You know, What we sometimes find is our operational excellence suffers when we have people who are in the wrong role or at the wrong company and uh, helping them find the right place for them is good for them and the company. That actually is a great segue into my next question, which is, you know, how do you approach doing that? What do you look for in people? How do you do those performance management? You know, like what are, what are some tips there for our listeners? What I look for in people is a lot around the Amazon leadership principles. You think about, can people dive deep? Do they have a bias for action? Do they get things done? Um, do they deliver results? You know, that's sort of the minimum bar. And then as they get to be more senior, you look for people who can invent and simplify, who can think big and who can hire and develop the best. My boss, Kim, who I mentioned earlier, she gave me the framework of product, process, people. Oftentimes people ask me, you know, how do I grow my career? What's the path? And when you're a, a junior engineer, junior product manager, all you have is the product you're producing. And when you are not working, you're unleveraged. As you become a first line manager or second line manager, you're setting up processes to make your engineers more successful and more productive. Um, and then as you get to be director and VP, you spend a lot of time on people. And so you have this continuum of product process people. You know, the first thing I look for is, you know, People who can deliver results, you know, at the lower level, and then the, the people who can invent and think big, you know, and be strategic, uh, move up, and then people who can manage others and build a, an organization, build a team, are going to move up again. So that's the first half of your question. The second is, you know, I believe that you should give candid feedback, and you know, giving feedback is probably the most important thing you can do for your employees, and it's hard. For many years, I was terrible at it. And I was always afraid of my people, and I was afraid they were going to quit if I gave them uh, critical feedback. 
actually was talking to my boss today about this because we're building a development program uh, internally to Flex. I had a guy who was super smart, but his behavior wasn't so good. And, you know, he could either be promoted or fired, <laughs> you know, equal chances of each. And I spent a, an hour on the weekend like, thinking about what I wanted from him and how I could share that with him. And maybe this is obvious for others, but like I wrote down a development plan. I spent an hour with him that next Monday and he rode home with a buddy of his. And that, that guy, Jeff, came in the next day and Jeff said, man, Ed could not stop talking about your conversation today. He was so happy and proud that you spent this time with him. And it really was meaningful to him. That was both positive developmental feedback, but also sort of critical developmental feedback. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I guess that feeds back into your product process people is, you know, in your current role, you're in in the people focused area, first and foremost, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, the first six months, I was effectively the, the VP of executive recruiting. And I brought in, you know, five or six senior people who I'd worked with before in various roles. I actually got a reputation such that my friends would send people to me, you know, when they were on their way to leave Amazon or looking for the next thing. They'd say, oh, you need to go talk to Dave. And so I had a, a influx of sort of director level people, which was great. And I hired five of them. And those people ended up being the people who helped us make it through Christmas this year. The leap from VP to CTO, right? And, and you go and do that at another company. I'm curious, like, what was the big difference for you there in making that leap? I don't think of it as a large leap. You know, I was a VP managing about 3,000 people at Amazon. I'm the CTO and I manage 50 people now. It was 22 people when I got there. You know, one of the questions we had uh, when I got to Flex was, are you going to bring the Amazon culture? There was some concern about that, but also some wanting of that. I heard whispers about that and I called the team together and I said, I'm not going to bring the Amazon culture. I'm going to bring the Dave Glick culture, which is highly influenced by Amazon. But here are the tenets of the Dave Glick culture, which is, you know, we empower our engineers. We try as best to be single threaded focused. You know, we deliver results. We want to be, you know, advocates of the sales team, not enemies of the sales team. That set the stage for running the same playbook I ran at Amazon which is, you know, remove distractions, figure out what the most important thing is, double down on that. Like my life is full of serendipity. You mentioned serendipity earlier. My second week, I ended up flying out to a warehouse and we were writing code and deploying it in production as we launched the site. And it was, you know, super taxing. And, you know, the, the engineers were working 16 hour days. I was working 16 hour days. We had all taken the red eye out. So we were already tired. But at the end of it, you know, everybody was super happy. And I got to know the engineers well, because we spent this crucible moment together. And as people were like leaving the warehouse, you know, people rotated back at different times. And as, as we were walking out of the warehouse, you know, one of the engineers came up to me and said, you know, thank you. Thank you for helping us achieve this. Uh, thank you for introducing me to my customer because I'd never been in a warehouse before. And I got sort of the same positive feedback from all the engineers who were there and all the product folks who were there that allowed me to do what I do well, which is sort of execute in the heat of the moment and run towards the fire um, and build instant rapport, both with the folks who were there, but also with the folks at corporate who are watching, you know, us not lose this account. I love that too. I mean, one of the things I always like to tell my engineers is go spend some time with your sales team and with your customer support team, and you will be such a 
better, more empathetic, better communicating engineer. You challenge yourself that way because most engineers like, eh, I don't want to talk to those people. You know, that's sales, that's support, that's somebody else's problem. But I, I love that advice. You got to meet the customer. Yeah. And I was preaching that sort of allowed me to preach, uh, put the engineer close to the customer over and over again. When I got there, we had the customer talk to the sales team, who talked to the VP of product, who talked to the product manager, who talked to the dev lead, who talked to the engineer. And they were working very hard to protect the engineers. We flipped that on its head, reorganized so that the product managers were part of the engineering team. And so that you know removed a layer. You know, I would personally go on sales calls and bring the dev leads or the product managers. That removed another layer. Now I have people come back to me and say, hey, we're going to put the engineer closer to the customer. If people ask me for advice, that's the number one piece of advice I would have for an engineering leader. For sure. That's such good advice. And that's usually my last question, but I'll, I'm glad you answered it now. Bringing this home, though, with a couple of things, I'm curious, Dave, you know, one of the things I really like to highlight on the show is that, you know, careers aren't always just up and to the right, as I like to say, right? I mean, I think so often we project them that way. I'd love to hear about what have been some of the particular challenges you've had to overcome in your career, you know, not asking to bear your soul, of course, unless you want to, but just like to hear like some of those challenges that have faced you. We did a training program for our new managers. We, you know, we had about 12 managers in one of my teams that uh, had gone from engineer to manager and we were doing a training program. And part of that was uh, telling our story you know, the senior leaders on the team were telling our stories. And one of the new managers asked me like, man, you've had a lot of setbacks in your career. <laughs> you know, how did you overcome that? I'll start with, you know, I got my PhD and I was like unemployed and I had you know, no path <laughs> to a job. You know, I read this book, What Color Is Your Parachute? And, you know, one of the things it said is always have a bunch of irons in the fire because if you're interviewing, you have a funnel, right? You're sending out letters and then you're getting a phone screen, then an interview. If you only are focused on one thing, if that doesn't come through, you're going to be emotionally distraught and disappointed. So always have a bunch of irons in the fire. You know, another time I and a bunch of my peers uh, were directors and, you know, my closest friends started getting promoted to VP and I was in a job which didn't have a path there. I was pretty unhappy and my friends were like, yeah, you're whining all the time, man. And, you know, one of the things I did is focused on something I could control, which was my health and my body. At the time, I was just getting into CrossFit. I put together metrics and I had, you know, weight loss metrics and, you know, how much I could squat metrics. And I was cleaning up my diet, and stopped drinking alcohol and, you know, a bunch of those things where if I can't control what's happening at work, I should control some other part of my life to show that I can control something. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when the coronavirus hit three months ago, I guess now, things felt out of control and I owned some property and I didn't know if my renters could pay rent and I didn't know what was going to happen to our company. But I started walking you know, three to six miles every day and started sweating heavy with my son. And you know, I've lost, uh, I think, almost 27 pounds in the last three months. But that allows me to focus on something that I can control. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations. I, I love the focus thing. You know, it's that old uh, Stephen Covey maxim of, you know, focus on your sphere of influence on the things you can control. I find myself telling my, especially these days from a leadership challenge, you know, you've got COVID, you've got protests, you've got a lot of upheaval in society happening and it can feel quite daunting, I, I imagine. And you just got to, you know, keep an eye on it. But of course, focus on what you can control. I think that's about all we can do, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, control the controllables. 
Maybe one last question. I think uh, you've, you've kind of hinted at a couple of these moments throughout, but spend a moment reflecting a little bit more on a mentor or a relationship or a friend that you've had that have really impacted your career. If you want to give a shout out, by all means, I love those. But just take a moment to reflect on what mentorship has meant for you. Yeah, that's a good question because I feel like I didn't change over the 20 years that I was at Amazon, but my bosses changed frequently. And when I had a good boss who was a mentor, I thrived. <laughs> and if not, I, I was unhappy and uh, making my friends unhappy as well. You know, Suresh Kumar, you know, he grabbed me out of sort of this dead end job and made me into a software manager. Rick Beatty, Suresh was my skip level after a while and I worked for Rick. He promoted me from, you know, manager to senior manager to director, which which I certainly felt was long overdue. And then, you know, two peers who we consult with each other and we've sort of in a friendly competition, uh, Dilip Kumar and Chris Rupp, who are always a couple steps ahead of me, but they're the carrot who I can chase when I'm thinking about relaxing. I love it. And thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, I think it sounds like you had a pretty rich network as well, which is fantastic. Dave, it's been awesome to have you on the show. I want one final question. Where can our listeners follow you, learn from you? I think you mentioned a Medium post in there, perhaps Twitter. Obviously, Flex will be sure to link up in the show notes as well here. But where can our listeners learn more about you or follow you? Yeah, the best place to follow me is LinkedIn. A few months ago, I was posting four times a month, and I grew my followers from 5,000 to 8,000, I think. Um, and so I try to you know post two or three times. And a bunch of the things I've talked about and some of the stories we didn't have time for, I've posted on LinkedIn 1,300 characters or less at a time. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Dave, thank you again so much. We'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. I appreciate you taking the time out of uh, what is no doubt a busy day for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate uh, you taking the time as well. Thanks so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.